Welcome to the Lab Life Podcast, a candid insight into the life of an undergraduate researcher. I'm your host, Richard Song. I'm an aspiring research scientist and undergraduate student at Vanderbilt University studying computer science, applied math, and neuroscience. In this series, I invite you along my research journey and share lessons that I and others have learned in the lab. On today's episode, I talk about my time at the Society for Neuroscience annual meeting for 2022 San Diego, which I just attended this past weekend. It was an incredible experience. I'll talk about my key takeaways from the conference as well as some of my favorite presentations that I listened to. So without further ado, let's discuss. Good to be back on the Lab Life podcast. Last week, I didn't produce an episode because I was busy and I was away in San Diego for the Society for Neuroscience annual meeting of 2022. This was my very first professional, real, out-of-school conference, and it was an absolutely incredible experience. So let me first just start talking about the conference, what it was all about, its general gist, and then I'll start talking about my main takeaways. And then finally, I will end with some of the coolest presentations that I listened to, in my opinion. So let's get started. So the Society for Neuroscience Annual Conference is usually a meeting that takes place every single year in either San Diego, Chicago, or Washington, D.C. However, because of the pandemic, it actually was not available for the past three years. In fact, I think the last time that occurred in person was back in 2019. So this was their first reopening after three years. This is probably one of the biggest neuroscience conferences in the entire world. If I remember correctly, the lady on the PA at the end said that the attendance was something like 24,000 people. And that is just incredible. Like you will not see that many conferences of this size in any topic. And what was really funny is that basically every single time I hopped in an Uber to hop to, to go to the convention center because I was going to the conference, they're just like, oh, you're another neuroscientist. I hope you have a great conference without even that's like the first thing they say to me because they're just so used to like driving these neuroscientists to the convention center and back. That just speaks to how many people were there. And even our flight to, Sh- to San Diego and my flight back from San Diego to Nashville, you could see so many people just carrying posters because, you know, they're all there for the conference. So it was just an absolutely huge conference. And during peak hours when people are moving in between the special lectures and like the poster sessions or whatever, this giant convention center just in downtown San Diego was just full. And it was awesome. Just like so many people all interested in neuroscientists, all interested, all all geniuses in their own field, all wanting to know more about the brain. I just thought it was just such a cool experience overall. So that was kind of the gist of the conference. Let's talk about what kind of events there were. So this conference had multiple different parts. So there was the poster presentations, which I actually had the chance to present in. There were these symposiums, which were these mini like PowerPoint presentations where during one symposium session, you would see maybe three to four different scientists presenting on their work. And most of these presenters were either postdocs or young professors. And finally, there were these special lectures, which were these one-hour lectures held in this giant ballroom by a clear expert in their field, just giving a general review of their work up to this point. In my opinion, I think these special lectures that I just talked about 
were probably some of my favorite events at the conference because you could really see these people. These were experts in their field and they gave such clear, holistic presentations on their work. And it was just super interesting to hear. In fact, I got the chance to see one of the special lectures on the very first day was actually given by a Nobel laureate, Arden Padapudian. Uh, he he got his Nobel laureate. He got his Nobel Prize because he discovered basically the piezo uh, mechanoreceptor, which, if you guys don't know, is the mechanoreceptor. It's a mechanoreceptor is a type of receptor that changes due to a conformational change. Like when you press on something, when you touch on something, that's a mechanoreceptor. Mechanoreceptors are really important for our sense of touch. And he basically did a bunch of experiments where he knocked out a bunch of different genes, which. And through that, he pinpointed the specific receptor that's responsible for our sense of touch. And that won him the Nobel Prize. And I got to see him talk in person live. And that was honestly one of the coolest experiences um, that I've ever had so far. So, so just some general takeaways from the conference. I'd say number one is with such a conference, such a big conference at this magnitude, it's really easy to get overwhelmed because there seems to be so much going on at a particular time, right? Like these poster, at one point there's these poster presentations where you have thousands of posters just lined up in this giant room and these posters range from all sorts of different topics, right? From Alzheimer's to sensory processing to hippocampus to imaging, everything. Um, is talked about in these posters and at the same time you have maybe five to six other things going on or probably even more in this case right you have these symposiums that are going on multiple different symposiums going on you have the graduate school fair going on you have these special lectures going on and on top of that you have just the city of san diego the incredible city of san diego that you really want to explore in general there's just so much going on at one point in time that i would say it's really important to at least create an outline for a plan of what you want to do so one thing that made Society for Neuroscience incredibly, uh, incredibly a good conference was that they had an app to go with the conference. And this app allows you to create a personalized itinerary of different stations, of different exhibits that you wanted to visit and at what time. And it allowed me to plan ahead my day so that I knew which sort of exhibits, who did I want to talk to, which poster presentations or symposium lectures did I want to see. And I feel like with this semblance of a plan, I was able to stay a lot more sane instead of just going, just being completely overwhelmed with all of the different events going on throughout the day. So that's number one. I'd say make a plan for how you want to tackle your conference. But number two is that notice that you're recognize that your plan is not necessarily set in stone, right? This conference has so many different opportunities. So many serendipitous things are just going to pop up in just just out of the blue because it's such a big conference right things are bound to happen make sure you have some flexibility in your plan i know for me there were days where i wanted to go to xyz poster presentation um but while walking through the poster hall i just saw some posters that really interested in me that weren't necessarily in my plan and I feel like those posters at the end of the day were some of the coolest ones that I actually saw. So make sure to have some flexibility in your plan. Don't don't basically don't have it set in stone, right? Give yourself some room to deviate from your original plan, but it's good to have a semblance of an idea of what you want to do beforehand. That's number two. Number three, and I wish I'd done more of this during the conference. I feel like I did this to a decent extent, but number three is 
to really see the conference not only as an opportunity to learn about your particular field, in my case, neuroscience, but also to network with the experts in the field. Talk to these poster presenters. Talk to the people at the graduate school fair. Talk to the presenters at the symposiums or the lectures. They're all really interesting people. They're experts in their field. And the fact that you have this this conference right now where the top neuroscientists are all convened in one convention center is a great opportunity to really get to know some of these people. So especially if you're interested in applying for summer programs or graduate school or postdocs or any sort of job position, the conference is an excellent opportunity to get to network with experts in the field who, hey, who, may, who knows, they might end up giving you a job in the future really interesting thing happened to me when networking and this is this is not even something that I did on purpose but this is probably the funniest thing that happens to me at the conference and even thinking about it still gives me chills what happened was during my poster presentation session I actually met my PI for my summer research experience next summer at the University of Tokyo, uh, Dr. Haruhiko Bido. I met him um, just completely randomly. I was presenting my poster and then suddenly I see him walking down the hall of the poster presentation and, and I called him over and he recognized me when he, he saw my name and that, that, that I was from Vanderbilt. And we had a really interesting conversation I want to say it went on for like 45 minutes to an hour. He was just at my poster and we were just talking about his research, about what he thought about, you know, animal models versus human neuroimaging, potential projects that I could do in his lab, interesting future directions to take. We just had a really insightful conversation and I would not have had this opportunity if I hadn't gone to this conference and he wasn't there. Um, and keep in mind, I've never talked to him before. I've never sent him an email before. I've never called him before. I've never connected with him before. But it was through this conference that I was able to connect with him in person. And I was able to learn a lot of really interesting things from him and his wisdom. So in general, conferences are an excellent opportunity to network, to get to know the experts in the field, to make new friends, and potentially even get a job. And... That kind of leads me to my fourth point, which is if this this is really similar, I guess. The fourth point is if you're applying to something, whether that's a summer program or a, a graduate school position like a PhD or something something else, conferences are an excellent opportunity to get an advantage. At the conference, there was a graduate school fair. And I know this is also true for a lot of other conferences as well. But graduate schools will basically send a admissions rep or some PhDs to set up a booth about their graduate program. And you can ask them a bunch of questions and you can just get to know them and network with them. And this is a really great opportunity to you know, get an advantage, potentially if you're applying to graduate school or applying to summer programs. I know some there's some excellent questions that you should ask. Among those are, how did you eventually choose this program? How is your relationship with your PI? What does that look like? What is the culture like in your lab? How did you decide on this eventual research topic that you're pursuing right now, et cetera, et cetera. Having the PhD students there is especially valuable because you get to learn what it is actually like to work in a lab at that school. So if you're applying for graduate schools or even summer programs, this is a great opportunity to get to know more about the program. All right, 
So now let's talk about some of my favorite presentations that I saw at SFN. And there were, just a disclaimer, SFN is a huge conference. I got to see so many cool presentations. Um, and, and I don't think there was a single presentation that I watched that I was just bored of because everything was just so cool, so new, so cutting edge, state of the art neuroscience that you just will not find anywhere in a textbook. But here are like some of the ones that really stood out to me either because, and I think the reasons why they stood out to me was because they used such a simple concept to do such a genius thing. So let's get started. I'm gonna list three of my most memorable presentations that I witnessed at SFN. So number one was a theoretical slash computational neuroscience special lecture presentation that I saw. And essentially what this researcher did was he decided that he wanted to model the inside of a fruit fly's brain while the fruit fly was navigating the world. And the fruit fly brain is very simple. It's very easy to map. It has a lot fewer neurons than a human brain, which is why he decided to choose a fruit fly because it has very good modeling potential. And what he found was that the inside of a fruit fly, their brain, their neurons, when they're navigating, actually follow a very interesting activation pattern. And that is the activation pattern for the fruit fly is modeled like a sine wave. So what I mean by that, when the fruit fly is flying, for example, in zero degrees, maybe their, uh, their neuron activation is one. And then when they go to 45 degrees, it goes back down to zero. The activation goes back down to zero. And then when it's 90 degrees, it goes back up to one again. And then onwards and onwards and onwards. And this is like a continual spectrum. It's literally just a sine wave. And I thought that by itself was really interesting, right? The fruit fly, their neurons are activated via a sine wave. But this is where it gets even cooler, which is that the left side and like the right side of the fruit fly's brain kind of converges downwards. The axons project into the body. And when they do so, they actually shift slightly. And this shift slightly basically represents that in their body. If, you, if, you, if you're familiar with trigonometry, you know that sine and cosine are just shifted. In the fruit fly, the sine wave was slightly shifted from like the left side or something. It was slightly shifted when it caught to the body and then the right side didn't, didn't change at all. And that basically represents in the body, the fruit flies navigation is modeled by both sine and cosine. And what he eventually found is that the parameters for the sine and cosine functions are one, wind speed and two, landmark features. And the fruit fly neurons inside of its body would basically compute sine and cosine waves based on the wind speed and the landmark parameters in order to navigate itself, right? The amount of activation that was coming from this combination of sine and cosine helped the fly determine the way to turn. And I thought that was so interesting, right? A fruit fly's brain, right? Infinite, like so much smaller than a human's brain. A fruit fly's brain was able to compute sine and cosines. It was able to do trigonometry in order to navigate. I thought that was just so cool. And it speaks to the fact that in nature, we see mathematics and we see such beautiful mathematics because eventually the equation that the, 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 
the fruit fly was computing was just a basic sine and cosine equation, right? It was literally just sine of something plus cosine of something. That was it. And I and, and that's the way that it navigates. And the researcher was was able to determine that uh, using some sort of imaging modality. But he was able to, to determine that the fruit fly's brain was indeed activating with sine and cosine. And I thought that was just so interesting and that math really appears in nature and it's just such a beautiful idea. That's the first presentation that I thought was really interesting. The second presentation that I thought was also really interesting is a little more complicated and it's not directly related to neuroscience, but it's it's an imaging technique. And this imaging technique is called optogenetics. First, what is optogenetics? So optogenetics is a really, really cool concept that I actually learned about in one of my classes that I'm taking right now. And the idea is that in mice, we can inject the mice with a viral tracer. And this viral tracer has a type of channel, a type of protein channel that binds to neurons, that goes on the, on the, the membrane of neurons. And this channel is called channel rhodopsin. And what's interesting is that rhodopsin is a type of photopigment that is found in our eyes that can be turned on with light. And as the name channel rhodopsin applies, channel rhodopsins can basically be opened when light shines on it. So it's a very specific type of protein that opens when light shines on it. And when it opens, the channel opens and allows for neurotransmitters to bind and then ions to flow through, right? The general way that optogenetics works is that you implant channel rhodopsin in a certain part of a mouse's brain, and then you actually shine a particular wave of light at it. In a lot of cases, it's blue light. You shine blue light at the neuron with channel rhodopsin, and that neuron now becomes active. The channel's open, it depolarizes or becomes more positive as ions flows through, and then it fires an action potential, meaning that it becomes active, and the neuron starts firing signals to other neurons, right? So through shining light, we can activate certain neurons which by itself I think was is really cool. The problem with that, however, is that optogenetics is a very invasive process. And that's why it's only done on mice because you literally have to cut open the mouse's brain and then shine light at a specific part of its cortex that's been implanted with channel rhodopsin. So it's very invasive and it can't necessarily apply to humans. You can't just turn on a light and suddenly a neuron in the human brain activates. You can't do that. Well, this project is different. This project showed a way where we can actually use optogenetics non-invasively. And essentially the way that works is that the, this is still an animal testing, but the researchers injected this nanoparticle via a vaccine into a, into a mouse's tail. And this nanoparticle would travel up to specifically specific part of the mouse's uh, like brain arteries and it would like kind of it would kind of stay there or, or bind to like some of the neurons or something, and then what would happen is that the the it, the, the nanoparticles would would implant like channel rhodopsin themselves. When when the researchers projected ultrasound uh, to the mouse's brain, that ultrasound would activate those nanoparticles, and what happened is that those nanoparticles would start emitting a light, which I think is so cool. You don't even have to shine a light directly into the mouse's brain. You just but ultrasound, that ultrasound turns on the nanoparticle. And then light shines, light emits from the nanoparticle, and then that opens the channel rhodopsin, and then the neuron becomes active. And this is also really non-invasive. It's just a vaccine, and the vaccine injects a nanoparticle, which can essentially emit light when it receives ultrasound. That was pretty cool. 
so that was the second presentation that I thought was really cool. The final presentation that I thought was really, really interesting actually combined something that I learned in biology to neuroscience. So the idea is that currently when we want to strengthen synapses and neurons, we, well, we do it with LTP. LTP is long-term potentiation. It's basically the strengthening of synapses. And there are a lot of ways that you can induce LTP. One of the ways is just through straight up stimulating the neurons at a very high frequency, or you can also potentially do optogenetics, or you can do something else called chemogenetics, where you take a particular drug and that binds to a artificially designed receptor that has been implanted on the neuron. Problem with that, however, is that it's not necessarily the most reliable. And as we talked about earlier, right, with chemogenetic or with optogenetics and with stimulation, both of them are very invasive. Um, chemogenetics is different. Um, and, and chemogenetics is something that I'm personally really interested in because I think it's also something that has a really big potential in the future. But this is, um, but besides that, this is another way to induce synaptic strengthening. This way I think is probably the wildest, but also the coolest way to induce synaptic strengthening. And the idea is that we can create these junctions in between two neurons, a presynaptic and a postsynaptic neuron, two neurons that basically connect to each other. We can induce something called a gap junction. We can introduce a gap junction between these two neurons. And what a gap junction is, it's one channel connected to one neuron, and that channel connects to another channel connected on a separate neuron. And this channel is porous. It allows things to pass through them such that ions from one neuron can pass straight through this gap junction, which is just two channels connected to each other. Ions can project straight from one neuron to the next neuron through these gap junctions. And this is actually enough to introduce synaptic strengthening because what you do is you depolarize one neuron. So you make it more positive. You make the inside of it more positive, meaning that it becomes more active. Then calcium enters through. Calcium enters through that, through that first neuron. And then calcium straight up just passes through that gap junction into the second neuron. And that's enough to depolarize the second neuron and cause it to be active. And that by itself is synaptic strengthening. You're not introducing any more receptors on either end of the neuron. You're not making one neuron fire more neurotransmitter. You're not making the second neuron more prone to receiving neurotransmitter. All you're doing is introducing two channel proteins on one neuron and the next neuron that connect to each other and ions just flow straight through that channel protein. This is literally genius. I've never considered the fact that this could be enough to cause, cause synaptic strengthening, but it did. Um, and the researcher was talking about a bunch of different ways to introduce the correct channels on the correct neurons in order to actually have synaptic strengthening. And he did a lot of computational simulations and a lot of looking into literature before finally finding two channels that did the job. One channel uh, belonged to one of the neurons, the other channel belongs to or the presynaptic neuron, the other channel belongs to the postsynaptic neuron. They'll basically find its way to the correct neuron, connect with each other, and that allows ions to flow in between two neurons. And the motivation for this study was that he found that depressive and anxiety symptoms occur when there's a weakening in the connection between the prefrontal cortex and thalamus, two areas of the brain. He found this with certain mouse models, and he confirmed this with uh, optogenetics, 
And basically what he found is that when you introduce this gap junction and you artificially increase synaptic strengthening, the depression and anxiety symptoms would become alleviated, would, would become better in the mouse. And that is so cool. It's a non-invasive technique because you can just introduce these gap junction proteins via a vaccine and they would find their way to the correct neuron that would, that would facilitate synaptic strengthening and then potentially be a future therapeutic to mental illnesses. Now, the next step for this project would be, okay, once the gap junctions have served their purpose, how do we turn them off? And more importantly, how do we get them out of there if they are malfunctioning? Um, but the fact that there is a simple prototype for this that works in mice is really, really promising for the future of therapeutics, medicine, and mental illness research. So that's all I have for today. Some of the coolest presentations that I had, as well as some of my key takeaways. I hope you enjoyed learning about my experience at SFN. I certainly enjoyed attending this conference so much myself, and it really reinforced my desire to pursue neuroscience research. Neuroscience research is honestly so interesting and has so much promise and real world application. And I'm just so grateful that I had the opportunity to attend this incredible meeting. So thank you guys for listening and I will catch you guys all next time. Thank you for listening to the Lab Life Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or whichever platform you are tuning in from. Please do not hesitate to reach out with any inquiries at richard.w.song at vanderbilt.edu. That's richard.w.song at vanderbilt.edu. So long for now, and I'll see you next time.